and satisfied until it's received. Love isn't satisfied until it's believed. And God is love. And he's not satisfied until his love is received. And he's not satisfied until his love is believed. modern-day Christendom today, and I see the conundrum that God's in because all these people who claim to follow God who is love, they don't believe that He really loves them. I mean, theologically, they'll admit it. But you know what they really believe, most people believe? They believe what the devil tells them about their self-worth, about their failures, about how they're not good enough, about how their sin is too great about the division that happened because you did this and that you don't feel the presence of God anymore and I imagine God has a very interesting time trying to get us to understand his love because I think he did everything he could possibly do to show it that he came down here because he was so desperate to be one with us again. You can imagine God being separated from his people for 6,000 years, only able to visit them and never able to inhabit them and to walk with them and to know them, to be have a father separated from his children for that length of time. So he sends his one and only son to become like us because there was only one way that we would be redeemed and that would be by the spilling of blood, a perfect human redeeming imperfect humanity. And when Jesus came, we rejected him. We didn't believe him. How does a God who sent his only son show you any greater love than that? How does a God who watched his son get beaten to a point where chunks and flesh blew out of his body and he held on because of the value of the church that he saw something in you that was worth dying for. He saw something in you that you don't see in yourself. And he hung on with every lash, with everything he went through, every nail that was pierced through his hands was for you. How does a God improve upon that? How does he show you again that he loves you? When the church and your life and the world has made his death so, so common, You've been preached to most of you your whole life and it means nothing anymore. That beautiful sacrifice of redemption that calls you back to the Father. That those nails were real and they really hurt. And that blood was real. He told a story before he ever got to that point. He said there was a man found a treasure hidden in a field and he dug through the earth and he found a pearl of great price so he sold everything he had and bought the field that's what it says you realize what that's saying you are that pearl and Jesus is that man and he came down here and he saw this field and he began to dig through humanity and he found something. 
He found something in you and me. At some point in prayer, he came back to his father and said, I'm I'm willing now, I'm going to go because I found something of value here. And I'm going to sell everything I have in heaven. I'm going to let go of it all and I'm going to buy this field. Do you understand? He didn't just buy the pearl. Because that's what we would do. He bought the field. What does the field represent? It represents all the dirt and the flesh and the junk that you're made of because you're made of dirt. You were made of clay. God formed you out of this earth. He didn't just want the pearl. He wanted the whole field. He finds value in you where you don't find value in Him. You've slipped into your traditions and we've slipped into our traditions and our, and our services, but we don't understand the value that He's placed on us, that the bride what we've become through His blood and how He's remade us. And we believe that we're defeated and we believe that we're, we're you know, out there somewhere and we're powerless and we're, these things come to our life and these circumstances that seem so unbeatable and we submit to them. I felt the Lord back there just saying, my people have limited, limited me. They don't believe that I can beat this thing. They've given up on me even though they're still showing up. In their heart, they haven't believed. You say, well, I believe in Jesus, so do the demons. There's a difference between believing in the love of God and knowing that He is the resurrection and He is the life and banking everything on it. Putting all your chips on the table, holding nothing back. How does God improve upon a perfect sacrifice to convince you He loves you? Every time you agree with the powers of darkness of your inability and failure, you undermine that great purchase that He made for you. Self-hate is the antithesis of loving of the love of God. You can't hate what God loves being one with Him. Listen, let me ask you a question. What is your knee-jerk reaction right after you get done messing up? After you mess something up, right after you commit a sin or something happens or you, or you miss the mark? See, your knee-jerk reaction is what you really believe. yourself up and if you're going to blame yourself or blame others you have yet to peel back the layers of the love of God for your life and so what we, what we do is, is because we're imperfect people we spend the entire time of our life kicking ourselves around the block thinking it's going to make us more holy like the cross wasn't good enough we have to improve upon the sacrifice of Jesus by bludgeoning ourselves with imperfection and self-hate. The moment something happens like that, when we realize the depth of our humanity, we should, like Paul, say, I rejoice in my weakness because there is a great blood that has been spilled for me, and I bathe in it now in the name of Jesus. jerk reaction should be God I'll, I'll always be this way without you but with you I'm forgiven and I thank you that I have an advocate with the father a lawyer that's presenting my case and it's not based upon my works he is sharing with the father why I'm worthy and it has everything to do with the cross 
What do you believe? Who do you believe? So many Christians bow to the idol of emotion. Instead of what the word says, the word is Jesus. And he said, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Amen. Thank you guys. I appreciate you all. If you can, turn to John 11. For those of you who have children and you'd like to... Uh, Send the children back. We have a Sunday school. If you want to keep your kids with you, that's totally fine too. Before I get started, and before I want to, I want to branch off of what I just said a minute ago. So I want you to keep your hearts and minds in this posture position. But um, I want to, I want to give a few of these away. How many of you guys deal with failure that have never read this book before? Anybody feeling with failure? Anybody else? You pass that. You, you want one? I got three of them here, guys. Anybody else? Okay, here you go. Yeah, right there, bro. I'll just grab it off the, the table. I want you to turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to try to hurry through this, but I want you to get the message this morning because I really feel like this year God told me that I want my people to know the love of God. Listen, guys, it's foundational. If you don't get the fact that God loves you, every other posture of warfare that you try to place yourself in spiritually will fail. We can't be that army they were singing about unless we're thoroughly convinced of the love of God because the love of God is what's going to send us into battle. The love of God is what's going to cause us to take the gates of hell and not let them prevail against us. If we have any other foundation than the love of Jesus Christ, we will slip and fall. And you got to understand the love of God is based on God himself, and God is the ancient of days. He's immovable. Nothing can change him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means the foundation of your life is as sure as it possibly can be. This makes sense to you. But I want, to, I want you to also understand that this modern era, we have so twisted and diluted the word love, we don't even know what it means anymore. We have pulled the teeth out of it. We don't understand God's love and how it actually works, how it plays out in life, because we love donuts and cheese, and we love God too. And there's no differentiation between who he is versus what we're consuming. We were built for him. Custom made to fulfill his heart. God cannot be satisfied unless he has you fully, not in part. And the jealousy of a raging God will chase you down to the day you die, seeking every part you don't give to him. Imagine being married to a spouse who only gives you 50%. Imagine being a spouse that only gives you 30%. Imagine seeing the value of that spouse and understanding that there's something inside of them that can fulfill not just you, but the family and the community, but they won't let it out because they won't release it because they don't believe it. See, God can tell you through a pastor, through a preacher, through whatever you want all day long, I love you, 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 but until you believe it, it means nothing. The love of God means nothing unless you receive it. You know how I many marriages I counsel where one party or the other doesn't believe the other party loves them? It doesn't matter how many times they say it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change it. I just, I just don't believe you love me. 
And this is what God has done. How many of you can raise your hand and say, God has been faithful to me at some point in my life. He's always been there for me. He's always met me. And that's him saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And you're like, but I just don't believe it. Because the next crisis comes and you wonder if he's left you, if he's abandoned you, if he's not answering your prayer because it's not going your way because it doesn't happen the way you thought it was supposed to be. And you think, God, the immediate thought is I must have done something wrong or God doesn't love me or God doesn't care about me or I'm not worthy. Jesus determines your value. You do not. You make it to John 11. I want you to, we're going to go through this story because it's a principle of how God operates with his people. There's a reason why this chapter is so long and why it goes into such great detail and why there was so many other things that Jesus did that doesn't go into this amount of detail. John chapter 11 is about is how Jesus treats those he loves the most. But it's the way we don't want to be treated. You make it? Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany in the town that they lived in, Mary and Martha was his sisters. It was the same Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore his sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, the man you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not of death, but for the glory of God. And that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. You see that? Is Jesus God? Is he love? Do you think he could possibly love these people anymore? Does God love in part? When he says he loved these people, there was nothing he could add to it. He said... He says, I love them, you're right? But when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the same place where he was. See, the, if you go back to verse 1, it says, there was a certain man who was sick. And that's you and me. There's certain parts of our life that need him. There's certain parts of our life that we realize that we need him. There's certain parts of our family that we realize needs him. People we love need him. Circumstances we're involved with need him, true or not. And we bear the weight of those burdens, just like his sisters did. Can you imagine them tending to him, making him tea, trying everything they can? They didn't just give up and walk out and say, hey, you know, you figure it out on your own. They're, they're plagued with this. They love their brother. They're with him day and night. The sickness is getting worse and worse and worse to the point where they send a messenger. Go tell him because they're afraid he's going to die. This circumstance is pressing on them. And they're powerless. They can do nothing. They're simply put into position for the mercy of God. Does it sound like you? How many of you have been in situations like that or are in a situation like that? You're dependent. If God doesn't move, something won't happen. And it says, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Now, I want to tell you right now that sometimes the Lord speaks and we don't get what he's saying. In fact, I know a lot of people who hear the Lord, but they grossly misinterpret what was being said. 
He said, this sickness is not unto death. Does he, look, is he, he looks like a liar at this point because Lazarus dies. We know the story. And God is speaking to them before it even happens to give them hope and faith. And that's exactly what happens in your life. God gives you a word. He speaks to you a circumstance or something over your circumstance. He says, hold on and trust me. I'm with you. Something happens. You read something, something on Facebook, a, a pastor, something in your private time. He gives you a word. This sickness is not unto death. This is not going to happen. And then everything in the circumstance goes against everything you heard from God. Do you realize this is where most people lose their faith right here? Verse 4. Because it didn't happen the way they thought. Because it didn't happen the way God said. God, And now I can't even know if God really spoke to me. I don't even know if the word of the Lord is even real. Why? Because they're basing everything on the love of God on how the circumstance is supposed to go the way they want it to. And when God doesn't perform to our standards, we bail on him. And when we don't perform to his standards, he sticks by us. Isn't that amazing? It says, verse 5, this is the key verse. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard, he stayed. You've been crying out to God and he doesn't seem like he shows up. In God's mind, the greatest love he could show them was to not give them what they wanted right now. Why? Because God's not concerned about healing a sick body or fixing a circumstance because those types of things usually end up getting taken away from us anyway. I'm not against healing. I believe in healing. But you know that healed people still die? What's the issue for Jesus? It's the glory of God and his people witnessing his power over everything that we could possibly think that is against us. He wants us to see and believe, to know him as the great resurrection of our life. He wants to speak a word to us of his son and have us hold fast no matter what we see because it's what he said. And this is how he treats those he loves the most. When you're crying out to him, sometimes he waits. And he doesn't give you what you want and what you're praying for right now, but he's given you a word. He's given you something to hang on to. And you know what it does? It proves how much you actually love him to hold on or whether you give up and quit. Faith reveals how much love we have for him. You, you follow me? And after this, after it was four days later, he gets up one day. I mean, imagine the disciples sitting there going, this is ridiculous. We should be doing something. And God is resting for four days. What if you called me and said, I need you now? And I waited four days to even answer your phone call or to show up. You know exactly what you'd think about me. And sometimes it's exactly what you think about God. Because we've predefined what love is. Love is God doing things my way when I say how I want, when I want. And if he doesn't do that, then I'm not sure he loves me. And 
He says, let's go. And his disciples looked at him and said, hey, you realize the last time we went there, they tried to kill us. Why are we going back? Lazarus is dead. Right? So he says, listen, he says, let's go. Jump down to verse 11. And he said, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I'm going to go wake him out of his sleep. You see the definitions of God here? What you call dead, he calls sleeping. What you think is done and over with, he says there's still hope. There's still life. There's still something there I can work with. God loves to take the impossible and work it for his glory in your life. What you want is for him to heal sickness. What he wants is to raise the dead. What you want is to make sure that nothing gets completely taken away from you 100%. You want God to come in and fix it before it dies. Fix it before it gets taken away from you. Fix it before you lose it completely. And God says, how about I, how about I let it die, have your hopes dashed, and then bring it back better and stronger than it ever was? You understand this? And they said, well, if he's sleeping, then he's going to be okay. And then Jesus spoke this of his death, but they thought that Lazarus was just resting. And then Jesus finally said, okay, look, he's dead. Let's go. And then you imagine their minds. Like, why are we going? If he's dead, we, we missed our shot. And he says, listen to this, verse 15. This is how God, this is how God thinks. You got it up there? Those first four words. I'm glad. Man, can you imagine a pastor doing that to you? I'm glad I wasn't there. Who do you think you are? Don't tell me Jesus didn't offend people. Imagine your best friend calls you and you finally say, I'm, dude, I'm glad I didn't show up. See, Jesus doesn't care about your temporary feelings. He cares about his eternal glory. Some of you need to dig the word of God back up out of your life that he promised you some things and you need to pull it back on his altar and said, I'm reminding you, I don't care how dead it looks, you said this to me. Be my resurrection in my life. I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Why? So that you might believe. See what he's trying to get out of this story? Love is not fulfilled until it's believed. Love is not satisfied until it's received. What is he concerned about? He's not concerned about Lazarus getting back up. He knows he has the power to raise the dead. God, listen, Jesus knows the end of the story, and he knows yours as well. What he wants to get you to is to believe it before you see it. He knows the end of your story. I love that song we, we opened up with. Emmanuel, my most favorite name of God other than Abba. God with me. What are you going to say to that, circumstance? What are you going to say to that, backstabber? 
Because people backstab you and they attack you and they beat you and they, right? And you do it to yourself. Emmanuel. So that you believe. All right, so they said, let's go with him. We're going to die. Let's just go with him and die with him, right? They just, we're done. This is the hopelessness of this situation. The next verse, he's like, let's, let's just go die with him. They didn't get it. He's still telling them, I've, I've got hope. I've got, given you something. And they're like, well, we're all going to be killed. There's, we're not getting out of this one. This, this is what happens to you and I. It's so negative. This is never going to work. It's impossible. When Jesus came. He saw that he had been living the dead for four days already. And Bethany was close to Jerusalem. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And this is what we call modern day ministry. Consoling people in situations where God wants to show glory. This is what we call love. Modern day ministry is just to put somebody's arm around you whenever something bad is happening and just console you and let you weep it out and cry it out. Jesus' ministry is to bring life to the situation to where everything is different because he showed up. Do you know that God believes in you? Or he wouldn't have chose you. He believes in his spirit in you. And he sent you to people not to console them, but to give them life. Consolation only patterns emotions. Life brings newness and hope. Listen to this, verse 21. Then Martha saw Jesus, and she said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's amazing how we love telling preachers and pastors and God himself what they're supposed to be doing. God, you, you should have done it this way. You should have, I, you know, God this, God that, why, God why, God why. You know, I know so many atheists because of the God why. They didn't wait long enough. Because they don't believe in the love of God. Because it didn't go their way. Who says you get to dictate love? Who is God? Love is not an emotion. Love is not a resource. Love is a person with an identity that reserves the right. Every time anybody ever asked him who he was, he said, I am who I am. You don't get to define me. I am who I am. You don't change me. Your opinion doesn't change me. On judgment day, shaking your fist in my face won't change me. I exist. I always have. I always will. I'm the ancient of days, and I am love, and I want you to believe me. I know this. Right now in our culture and Christianity, people are idolizing their opinion over the word of God more than I have ever seen in my entire life. People who have never even read the book are telling me how I should preach it. Because it's their opinion. Well, this is what I believe. Demons have a personal theology too. Jesus is the standard. Not me, not you. Jesus is the standard. And if you're not living like him, you have better get some things straight because he believes you can. You with me so far? He loves you. He wants you to believe that. Oh, and he said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. 
And here she goes with her theology. She's so smart. Just like me. Here I am with God. Like, okay, yeah. And he's like, would you just shut up and let me work and just trust me? I know he'll rise again, Lord, in, in the resurrection in the last day. Because she's got her theology right, see? She's got her eschatology right. She's got all the things lined out. She's listened to the teachings of Jesus. She sat at his feet. She knows what's going to happen in the end. She's, you know, staying there in faith. Lord, I know that one day he's going to rise again. He's like, you have no freaking clue what I'm about to do or I'm here. And that's exactly what happens in our life. We have, you have, some, some of us have no idea. I have no idea sometimes why God is even in my life in those moments. And it's not the reason I think. Does this make sense to you? And he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, I am the resurrection, which means I am life inside of you. Where I'm about to go and what I'm going to do for Lazarus is what I'm going to do for myself and for you. Graves will not hold you. I am in you. And therefore, I will rise and I will show myself victorious over every circumstance in your life if you will just believe me. Is he the resurrection? Is he the life? Well, then where does he live? You're a walking resurrection moment. The king of glory lives inside you. What's the Bible say? He, the, the same spirit, what? That raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. There's so many times our faith is weakened because we are looking at circumstances and physical issues and we're looking at the responses of people and how they're acting and it deflates everything inside of us. And we don't believe that we have the same spirit to raise the dead inside of us. We don't pray over those circumstances and command them to come forth. We act like beggars asking God for, for mercy when he's saying, why don't you release life? Why did he put you in that situation? So that you could see his glory through you. Do you understand that following Jesus, it always has to look worse before it looks better? Tell that to the disciples who saw him hanging on the cross. All of their hopes dashed. Everything they believed in, gone. Why do you think they were hiding after his resurrection? They didn't know he had risen from the dead because they didn't believe he was alive. They were scared. They were full of unbelief. They lost their king. They thought they were wrong. They thought the prophecies were wrong. They were outlawed, hunted down. It always looks worse before it looks better. And we as the people of God need to understand that that's a principle of how God treats his best friends. I'm going to let some certain things die inside of you because when that happens, you're going to see a glory from me that nobody else is going to see. And I love you enough to show it to you. Amen. You realize that Moses prayed for this type of thing? Show me your glory, yeah? He prayed for that. And he wasn't able to look on it completely. And this is exactly what God's trying to give these people. I want you to see my glory. He's answering the prayer we've never prayed. He's giving to us something we've never even asked for. They had to beg for it in the Old Testament, but now here he's freely giving the, the glory of God and showing this is how it's gonna be. Follow me, and you may go through moments like this. Following me, I love you, I'm here for you, but sometimes I wait because you need to know and see my ability and my power. That doesn't fit your Christianity and my Christianity sometimes, does it? 
We want God to do it right now because it hurts us. This is what we want to see. He says, I'm the resurrection. Whoever lives and believes in me shall not die. Do you believe this? What is Jesus' focus again? What do you believe? You realize God made this so simple that strong atheistic minds can't get this? What do you mean? It's, I just believe that's it? Yeah, that's it. There's got to be something more. No, you just believe him. You hold fast. You hold the line. You know what makes belief possible? Love. Show me weak faith, and I'll show you somebody who's not fully in love with Jesus. They may love him, but they're not fully in love with Jesus. The greatest of these is faith, hope, and love. You know why they go together? Because love is the foundation of the other two. You can't believe unless you love. I'll prove it to you in this story. Right? We just saw that this was the same Mary that poured the oil out on the feet of Jesus. Do you realize that in this moment she still had that oil, she still had that box, and she didn't break it on his feet right now? You know why? Because she wanted something from him, and he wanted something from her. You know that she still had this box in this house? You know that Jesus was in that house many times teaching. He was with them, staying there, and he saw that box in the corner. He saw the value of it. He saw the value in her. He saw the value in Lazarus, but she wasn't yet ready to commit, was she? And there's some of you who have boxes of, in your heart that you haven't fully committed to God. Do you realize that the first time, that you guys know the law of first mention? In seminary, they'll teach you that the, that the first time a word is used in Scripture, it sets the context for every other time it's used after that point in Scripture. The first time the word love shows up in the Bible is when, it's the same, ironically, the same time the word worship shows up in the Bible. And it's when God looks at Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And sacrifice him. Give me your all. Why? Because I'm about to do the same for you. What happened there in Genesis 22 was a sign and a symbol of what God was going to do for us. And even though Abraham was willing to carry it out, God wouldn't let him. Because he says, you know what? You're not going to have a greater sacrifice than me. I will give you everything. That's you. Say your name. He's going to give you everything. He gives you everything. Everything. You have everything you need for life and godliness, the Bible says. You lack nothing. Jesus says, I have freely given you all things. What do you lack? But you know what our prayers are so full of? What we lack. In God's mind, you don't lack anything. So to pray for something you already have, he can't answer that prayer because you already possess it. You can't pray for something he's already given you because he's already given it to you. You won't answer that prayer again because it's inside you. What you need now is belief. You need to hold the line. You need to grab the word of God and say, I'm standing on what you told me because you are true. You, out, you outlast my circumstances. You outexist my moment. And even if I don't see it, I will die believing it. And I'll receive it in the end. And then his other sister comes out. She says the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, verse 32, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus saw her weeping and he saw the Jews weeping. In verse 33, 
And he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. Anybody that thinks that Jesus wept here in this verse because he loved Lazarus and he was dead doesn't understand the verse or the context. Jesus knew he was going to get up from the girl. Why would Jesus be crying over Lazarus because he was dead? Because he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Why would that, why would that grieve him? I've heard so many pastors my whole life, oh, he loved Jesus so much he was weeping because he was dead. And he just, Jesus doesn't bow to emotion. He knew he was fixing to raise him from the dead, so why would he be weeping? I'll tell you why he was weeping. He was weeping because of the unbelief of his people. Life was right in the presence of death, and they couldn't see it. How much more bold and blatant can it be that the resurrection is standing in their midst, and the entire church is bowing under the emotion, and, oh, God, this is horrible. And this is so many times what we do in worship in church. We come and we, we worship through our circumstances instead of over them. We come together just bowed down, coming in this door like dejected and, and, and persecuted and cast out and just believing the lies and believing the attack of the enemy. And praying from that place as well, like praying from underneath the thing instead of where the Bible says that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. He cried, he, sowned, he sighed within his spirit. It was more, it was more like this. Uh, And I feel like that's where God is with the church right now. Not that he's disapproving of you. It's just like, why well, can't, I don't understand. I can't give you any more than what I've given you. I've given you the riches of heaven. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a down payment to your inheritance. He's just the down payment. How great is he? Oh my gosh. He's inside you. He's given you the love of God, the life of God. He birthed you. He, got, he pulled you out of darkness. He's, he convicts you. He shows you the love of Jesus. And he's just the down payment. And God's sitting here like, I don't know what else to give you. I don't know what else is going to shake you out of your apathy. Sitting in your chair, not doing anything for me, and wondering why you even exist and living under the powers of darkness. Or under the power of your own intellect and affluence, the things that you've done wrong your whole life and how you've screwed everything up or whatever the lie may be. You know, some people, I ask them, you know, who are sick, and I'm like, well, do you, do you believe God can heal? And, oh, yeah, I believe God can heal. And then you ask them, well, do you believe God will heal you? Pause. Why? Because they don't feel valuable enough. They don't believe in the love of God. They agree with the love of God. They, they confess the love of God. But do you know what Jesus says in the last days? That the love of many would grow cold. You know what that word means? It means by process of evaporation. It grows cold slowly. It also means to exhale, which means whenever you say you love God, it's hot coming out of your mouth. But as soon as it goes into the life, it cools down. Because we know what we do in church, it's, it's, it's popular to confess the love of God. And boy, it's hot on our lips there in worship. But then when we go out there and we start living, we don't believe he's for us. We don't believe he loves us. We don't believe he's with us. Or, you know what the army needs to be? It needs to be standing. It's like Ephesians 6. You just stand. You just stand there. You're like, well, what do I do? You just stand. What, what army just stands? One that's already won. 
one that's already been victorious. You just hold the line. That's why I really don't like a lot of modern spiritual warfare teaching because we feel like we have to do all. No, you stand, you just, if you have to address the devil, you just remind him of your authority and you just set the bar down there and he can't move. No, you're not going to influence these people like this. I don't care what I see. I refuse to believe it in Jesus' name. Jesus is king. And so, well, why does the devil win so many times? Because so many people believe him more than God. It's not that they don't have faith. They have plenty of faith. They're just giving it to the demon instead of Jesus. A lot of pastors play it off on a lack of faith. Well, you just don't have enough faith to be healed. No, you've got enough faith to be healed. You've got enough faith to live a whole life. You've got enough faith. God's given you everything you need. You're just giving it to the wrong master. Don't you know Paul says, whoever you obey, that's whose slave you are? He's talking to Christians, not unbelievers. You can be bought by the blood and you can obey hell, and that's whose master you are at that moment. That's why he says later on, he says, you can't drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils at the same time. Make your choice. And Jesus finally comes down after signing. He says, where have you put him? Just show me where you've put him, and I'll take care of the situation. And Jesus wept. And then they misinterpret this whole thing, verse 36. And the Jews said, oh, beloved, look at how much he loved him. They have no clue that he's weeping over their unbelief. And I'll take it a step farther. They have no clue how much he loved them. They were willing to have confessed the love of God for Lazarus, but they weren't willing to confess the love of God for themselves. Amazing, huh? You ever been able to pray for somebody and you can believe for somebody and stand for somebody and fast for somebody and pray for somebody and know you've heard heaven, but when it comes for standing and believing and praying for yourself to, to, to come through these things, that you're, you, just, you just don't ever know if it's ever going to happen. You know, the church is so against abortion, and it should be. But do you, you know why we have such a, a pervasion of abortion in this, in this nation? Because the, the, the society follows the church. We're so used to aborting the word of God in our life that we've released that authority into the spirit realm. God gives you a word, and you bail on it. You kill it, because he honors your authority. Thankfully, we can raise the dead. You with me? Grab a hold of what he spoke to your life and pull it back to the table. Lay it on the altar and do not allow the devil to pull it back off. This makes sense to you. So he says, take away the stone, verse 39. And they're like, hey, this is not a good idea, Jesus. You don't understand. You know how many times we're telling God he doesn't understand? My situation's too bad. I've done too many wrong things. My mentality's not good enough. These people, are, they, they've hurt me too much. They, they're so evil. They're this, they're that. This is that, this financial situation. I've messed, it, it stinks. This whole thing stinks. God is not afraid of your mess. He loves you enough to buy the field. Good, bad, and the ugly, thorns, everything in it because there's something of value there. Do not tell God what is valuable. He bought your whole life. He bought everything. He owns it. He sold all of heaven to buy you. 
there's your value. There's your value. To believe anything else is to believe the accuser. And the word accuser literally means Satan. And listen to this, verse 40. Didn't I tell you? This is it, guys. Right here. This is so simple. Didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you'd see my glory? You don't realize how powerful that is because, like I said earlier, men in the Old Testament had to beg to see this. And only one or two got to see it. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he waited. Because the object isn't getting what you want. The object is he says, I want you to see something in me that you've never seen. I want to show you a piece of me that I've reserved just specifically for you. Because see, it's your circumstance, isn't it? And so it's going to be something that only you see between you and him. It's so personal. God. I know it looks impossible. But he says, see, didn't I tell you if you believe you'll see the glory of God? Listen to this. This is, what, how, this is how I want to learn how to pray. They took away the stone from the place, verse 41, where it was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. See, that's what we need to do. Because if your eyes are on the death, if your eyes are on the circumstance, if your eyes are on the situation, if your eyes are on the problem, you're going to pray differently than what he's about to pray. You want to learn how to pray? This is a lesson right here. Are you there yet? This is what it says. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He hasn't even prayed yet. <laughs> I thank you that you've heard me. Jesus' heart cry for our faith and our belief comes before his prayer. And your heart cry to know him and to love him and to be one with him comes also before your prayer. And God hears your heart. And here's what he says, verse 42. And I know that you always hear me. You ever started a prayer like that? I thank you that you always hear me. It takes faith to do that. Not blind faith. Faith because you love. Because you love him. And you know you love him. And you know he loves you. So you can pray. Father, I thank you that you always hear me. Doesn't sound like a beggar, does it? Doesn't sound like somebody submitted to emotion and circumstance, does it? It sounds like somebody who's standing over top of something, declaring his legal authority as life over death, which is your command to do so. Amen. When the church becomes her most powerful, she will be fully operational in the ways of Jesus himself. And you realize that the only thing that's keeping us from that right now is our faith in him. 
And the only thing that's keeping our faith in him from being what it should be is our love for other things. Success, money, future, hopes, dreams. Remember, Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him to me. You want greater faith? Offer your greatest sacrifice to the Lord. Give him your best. Lay it on the altar. Because then he knows you love him. And out of that love, you will birth nations. Those nations will be disciples, thus fulfilling the command of Jesus. Go to all nations, teaching men everything I've told you. Right? The word teaching means disciple. It says, because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe also. He's actually praying out loud, not for his sake or for Lazarus' sake, but for everybody listening, so that way they, they know that he is right with the Lord. Imagine such a unity with God that you don't have to pray for the circumstance. You're praying for the people watching what's about to happen because you're there. That's the only reason he was praying, so everybody else would believe because God's obsessed with people trusting and believing him. He said, Lazarus, come forth. You know what we do? We try to call, we try to use that word right there. We try to call forth the life of the circumstance because of positive confession full of unbelief. You can't say those words over your circumstance until you fully rested in his ability to do what you're asking him to do. Until you're fully convinced. Because you know what? Death is not convinced of your theology. It's convinced of Jesus' power. And you're not going to be able to exercise that power unless you're in full operation of faith. And you're not going to be able to operation, fully operate in faith until you come to that place where you know I love you more than anything. I love you more than getting what I want out of the circumstance. And if this is my Isaac, I lay it down. And then he comes forth and it says in verse 44, loose him and let him go. See, then you start, then you can practically do something once God reveals these things and brings them power. Then you can start stripping off the grave cloths and freeing the thing and working with the deliverance and working with the, uh, the restoration and working with, you know, getting it back into order. Does this make sense to you? Everything I'm saying this morning comes down to this. This, is, this chapter outlines how God treats those who love him, he loves the most. And ironically, the things that imitate or mimic and look like this circumstance in your life, the same circumstances that seem similar, are the very thing in your life that's convinced you that God doesn't love you. Did you hear that? Those circumstances that you're going through that are similar to this are the things that have convinced you that God isn't there for you. And this is actually why he's doing this, because he loves you. Because we don't understand what love is. Love to you and me is simply giving us what we want when we want it, how we want it. Love to God is showing us a piece of himself that he knows we need to see, that he's reserved just for you and me because he knows where that pearl's buried in you and you don't. And that's what he wants. If you're willing to give it to him, if you're willing to lay it on the altar, you're going to see something of him you've never seen before.
And it's not gonna, you're not going to understand you're not gonna, how it's going to look, but it will be life. Something of life will come. Something will rise from the dead. It, it means it may not be exactly the way it was before or whatever it might be, but something of you will rise. So you'll walk out of that season realizing, I am different. I am alive. I am a- alive. I'm no longer bound by this anymore. I'm no longer bound by the fear of it anymore. I'm no longer bound by the bad dreams of it. I'm no longer bound by the pain of it. I am alive now. I am over this because he is over me and I've submitted to him. It is finished in my life the same way it's finished on the cross. It doesn't move me anymore because he is the resurrection. He is the life and he is inside of me. You come to this place and I promise you in your heart, If you have any relationship with Jesus whatsoever, you're going to hear him say, well done. Because you've been transformed from doubt to faith, from unbelief to hope, from death to life, casting off the old, shining in the new. This is the nature he died to give you. This is the nature you're supposed to walk in. This is the nature he will teach you in. But you have to let him define love to you. And it will be defined very difficult through hard circumstances. But if you believe, he says, did not tell you. If you just believe me, you would see. How many times have you gone through something and you didn't trust the Lord and it worked out perfectly? And you wish, man, I wish I would have believed him a little more than I did. You know what those are? Those are Abba moments where he's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. One of these days you're going to wake up and go, he's faithful. Though he slay me, I'll trust him. And people are going to say, you're crazy. And you're going to say, no, I'm finally in love. Stand your feet. If you have anything in your life, I'm just going to ask you right now just to lay it on the altar of God. Any Isaac that you haven't laid down, any Genesis 22, any place in your life where you've realized that unbelief has been more familiar to you than faith, that doubt has been more familiar to you than love and acceptance, that you just make the simple transfer right now and just say, Jesus, I'm done with darkness. I don't want it anymore. I don't want to theologically agree with love. I want to be transformed and wrecked by it. So if that's you, just lift your hands where you're at. Just say, Lord, I surrender. I don't know how, but I'm giving you everything I know to give you. I'm laying it on the altar, and I'm asking you. I'm asking you for a greater love so I can believe and trust you. So that these things in my life that are hard and difficult, that you own them, and that when I look back on them, Father, that I would see that you were there and your hand was there, and these things that have caused pain will become a future testimony because I trust you and I believe in the love of God for my life. I accept the sacrifice of Jesus, and I accept the stripes of the cross, and I accept the wounds that he took, and I accept the beating that he took that proved his love for me, and I thank you, Jesus, as you said, only believe. So I'm stretching out my faith, and I'm asking you to help me, and I pray Pray the prayer that the man prayed before you. Help my unbelief. Lord, let these people take this alabaster box that's in their life and spill it at your feet because you're worthy, holding nothing back from this day forward. And when they stumble, Father, get a group around them. Pull a community around them. People that will, that will stand over them and say, believe, I'm with you. The Lord's with you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, the down payment and the inheritance that you've given us. We receive it fully. We believe our position and our posture in the kingdom of God. We do not believe a lie. 
We do not believe that death has power and authority over our circumstances. We do not believe death has power over our bodies. We do not believe those things in Jesus' name. We release life and loose hope and the love of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom rest. In Jesus' name, amen.